Welcome to Studio Tulsa. I'm Rich Fisher. My guest today visited Ukraine during the first few weeks of the war and ended up teaching civilian volunteers basic defensive military techniques during that two-week stint last year. He then returned to Ukraine last fall as the counteroffensive was making huge gains to get a fuller picture of the war and the foreign volunteers, paramilitary and foreign fighters, who have taken to Ukraine's cause. Matt Gallagher is a Tulsa Artist Fellow and has written about both experiences in Esquire magazine. He is a former U.S. Army captain and a veteran of the Iraq War. His first book was Kaboom, a memoir of his time in Iraq leading a scout platoon. He has since written the novels Young Blood and his most recent, in 2020, Empire City. In addition to his fellowship in Tulsa, he also works remotely as an instructor at New York University's Words After War workshop, which is devoted to bringing veterans and civilians together. His latest Esquire article is titled, The Secret Weapons of Ukraine. And he joins us today as my guest on Studio Tulsa. Such a pleasure to have you on Studio Tulsa. Thanks very much for joining us. Appreciate you having me, Rich. You served in the military. In fact, your first book was a memoir of, of your time in the military. You have been uh, going to Ukraine in the first months of the war and actually spent two weeks training civilians on how to defend their country. Now, you recently returned to Ukraine to follow some of the volunteers and foreign fighters who have been drawn to Ukraine. What did you find there? Well, both trips, I found a real fierce resolve of uh, an independent sovereign nation intent on defending itself. Last February, uh, when we trained the civilians, it was a very focused, very busy time in one city in, in Lviv in Western Ukraine. Uh, so we didn't get a real feel for the war as a whole or the country as a whole, uh, but definitely got exposure to the patriotism and love of freedom and love of democratic ideals that, that I think sometimes we take for granted here here in America, but but are very new in that part of the world. And they feel like they've only recently attained them, and, and uh, they now see them under under threat again, and they're willing to take up arms to defend and fight for them. Uh, this most recent trip, uh, when I went back strictly uh, as a journalist, I got the opportunity to see that, see that across the country. Uh, we went to Mykolaiv and Kyrgyzstan in the south, and then Kharkiv, uh, kind of in the far northeast, only about 10 miles away from the Russian border. And it got much closer to the effects of, of the war and where combat was taking place. And uh, uh, seeing how these ideals really kind of transcend Ukrainian cultural divides, economic divides, societal divides, this is like something out of a, a previous century, but it's happening right now. And as tragic as it is, it's, it's also really inspiring, I think. Now, when the first time you went, uh, you went with a couple of friends and I think it was sort of you sort of sort of fell into actually training <laughs> a yeah. group of civilians. And I suppose you were going over at some point to, you know, jot notes for perhaps an article or, or do something, some writing about this, this time strictly as a journalist. And one of the things I was struck from both of your trips is this sort of network of people who are attracted to a country in chaos, if you will, or in wartime. And I was very struck by how you write about all these people and figuring out exactly who they are and why they're there. Mm -hmm. 
that was a big task in both of the articles, I think. Yeah, you know, like like so many things in life, it, it's complicated. Um, you're getting all types, or, or you know, like like any war, you're, 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 all types are being drawn to it, like moths to a flame. Um, some are uh, genuine altruists, uh, like William McNulty, who I followed uh, most recently, and, and and his outfit, Operation White Stork. It's a nonprofit that goes around uh, handing out medical tourniquets to Ukrainian soldiers, generators to civilians, blankets to civilians. These are the real deal humanitarian people that that I think we all should believe in. Uh, then you're going to get people with more muddled purposes. Uh, yeah, they're there to help people, they're, but they're also there to make some money. And then, yeah, you do kind of encounter genuine profiteers. And uh, that is just the way of the world. And, um, you know, were there moments I felt like I was in a scene in Casablanca? Uh, for sure. Uh, you know, trying to tease out who these people are, who they say they are, and who they really are, who they say they work for, who they really work for, uh, so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, I'm just very blessed that uh, Esquire gave me uh, 7,000 words to, to tap into that nuance and complication. Yeah, the name of the ar article is uh, The Secret Weapons of Ukraine, which uh, really focuses on the influx of people who have come to Ukraine, either as volunteers or some, in some cases foreign fighters. I'm glad you mentioned William McNulty because this is he really is doing important work strictly as a volunteer in many cases, some of these volunteers, they're losing money coming over there. And it's about, I guess it's about the cause. They see this as, I think one of your subjects said, it's not good versus evil, it's evil versus normal. Yes. I thought that was that was an interesting phrase. But nonetheless, they're, they're putting a lot of their own skin into the game because they see this as sort of a cause that's bigger than them. Right. Uh, you know, so you have you, your Ukrainian volunteers that are that are there and they're putting forth their efforts for their family and friends. And then you have these these internationals uh, like McNulty or uh, Ahmed Khan, who's a philanthropist, an American uh, who made a lot of money as an investment banker and is literally flying around Ukraine, finding uh, different causes to donate to. And I think for a lot of them, uh, this goes back to how, you know, their formative years. Uh, Khan got his start kind of in the Clinton White House and, and helped like with Rwandan genocide camps more recently, uh, helped evacuate a lot of Afghan refugees uh, and sees this as a continuation of that work. McNulty, uh, like myself, is a, is a veteran of Iraq, the Iraq War. And uh, we met a lot of veterans of Iraq or Afghanistan, not just Americans, but Canadians, Australians, so on and so forth, who have a lot of mixed feelings toward their their own time in uniform, toward their own service, and view this, no war, of course, is purely black and white, but this is about as close as you can get, in my estimation at least, and, and certainly the estimation of these volunteers, and really view this as, as an opportunity to to save lives and, and maybe pay some hard-earned experiences from their time in those previous wars, pay it forward, and uh, uh, make life a little bit easier for Ukrainian soldiers or Ukrainian civilians that, that, again, are actually fighting a genocide attempt. I think it was William McNulty who said, this is probably the purest cause I've ever been involved in, and obviously was a veteran of Iraq and, and Afghanistan. Yeah, you know, the, the historical comparison I, that I think is apt in some ways is, is Spain in the late 30s, which also mm -hmm. attracted kind of a ragtag band of, of international volunteers who, you know, understood that the, the loyalist side of Spain wasn't perfect, but it wasn't fascism either. Um, it, it did represent a democratically elected government uh, like, like Ukraine does today. 
One key difference is that I think a lot of Western governments are more quickly recognizing the importance of this fight and, and to various degrees, depending, you know, depending on the subject, are supporting uh, Ukraine's defense for that. And also the fact is the loyalists uh, in Spain lost and uh, okay. the Ukrainians are going to win. It's just uh, a matter of when, not if. Let's break that statement down. Uh, let me contrast what you found in the, f- the first month of the war. One of the vivid description was uh, you can't get a picture of this until you see a middle-aged lawyer running across an open field mm-hmm. looking for cover mm-hmm. and doing it repeatedly. You know, that was at one point at the very beginning of the war. Now, almost a year in, that you're looking at the population. Any changes in that attitude? Big time. I, I noticed a, a palpable difference in atmosphere and, and attitude. You know, that first month, there was just this constant pervasive tension and anxiety because nobody really knew what the state of the war was. Uh, you know, there were rumors in, that Russian airborne uh, units were parachuting into, into the woods outside of Lviv. Kiev was under assault. You know, they did get very close uh, to that city. I mean, really, the, it was this last trip when we went up to Irpin and Bucha, and you realize just how close they actually got to taking Ukraine's capital. So there was just kind of this palpable anxiety. You know, every hour um, uh, people were, it was just kind of this rumor mill of, of, of tension. There was more kind of a grim resolve, I found, this this last trip. You know, we, get, we got back in November. Uh, the lines have mostly settled in, right? People know where the war is. Uh, Kiev itself is not currently under attack. That said, you know, thousands and thousands of more of Ukrainian young men and women have died or been seriously wounded. It's affected every person. Every person there knows somebody who has been killed or killed or wounded. Um, going to the cemetery in Lviv and seeing four freshly dug graves. Um, literally, you know, we literally saw a, a, a weeping mother visiting the grave of, of, of her son who had only been killed a couple months back. You know, war is part of their everyday society now. Nobody really knows when it's going to end, but there is just kind of this grim resolve that um, they are going to get through this. So in some ways, it was it was more stable. In other ways, it was much darker and, and, and certainly sadder. So let me unpack that statement. You said that Ukraine will win. Mm-hmm. Is it just a matter of even if Russia conquers more territory, this conflict will not end much in the way... <laughs> The American army was able to take large parts of territory, say in Iraq, Mm -hmm. but you always had this ongoing resistance. So, you know, there's a couple reasons I I, I say Ukraine will win. You know, there's the, uh, and I'm no grand military strategist, but, you know, uh, uh, the fact that Russia's expended so much effort and manpower trying to just take uh, the city of Bakhmut, which people far smarter than me say really doesn't hold much strategic purpose. It it certainly has symbolic purpose uh, at this point. I, I don't know how they're going to get too much farther into those eastern provinces, let alone try to take Kiev or Odessa again, let alone Lviv. But then, you know, I, I think more pertinently kind of in the, in the long run, um, and, and this might be because I'm of Irish descent, and this is how <laughs> Irish folks for, for hundreds of years were raised to, to view their own fight for, for independence and freedom. Ukrainian national identity has never been stronger. If, if anything, this war has deepened it. Uh, I'm thinking of, of the family... We feature uh, in in this most recent article, Victor and Natalia, who we met uh, in a very small village uh, northeast of Kharkiv. It had been occupied by Russian forces uh, uh, for a couple months. Um, And, you know, they they fled their village uh, to the city to to get away from the occupying forces. 
their eldest son has, was also killed in the war. Um, they were just really incredible people. We literally found them trying to rebuild their house. The whole village has just kind of been torn apart. Uh, and they taught, you know, th these are Russian speakers. These are the people that Putin thought were, uh, was going to uh, welcome them, <laughs> right, with, with open arms and flowers. And, and, you know, for the most of the conversation, Victor, the husband, uh, stepped forward and, and answered most of my questions. When we broached this subject, it, it was Natalia who stepped forward and said, we hate them. They took everything from us. Uh, uh, I, I've never been more Ukrainian in my life. Uh, they're making, you know, on a language level, they're, they're trying to speak more Ukrainian, which historically has been more kind of a Western Ukrainian thing. They fly flags in a way they didn't before. They did not, she, she said they did not consider themselves political people before last February. Now, now they're entrenched Ukrainians. So, you know, from a long-term perspective, Putin could not have made a greater folly in terms of trying to bring Ukraine back into his, whatever his twisted vision is of, of a renewed imperial Russia. My guest today is uh, Matt Gallagher. He's a novelist and nonfiction writer. He's a Tulsa artist fellow. His most recent novel is Empire City, but he is, uh, over the last year, he's done reporting from Ukraine uh, in two separate trips. Uh, his most recent article was featured at the end of February in Esquire. It's called The Secret Weapons of Ukraine, and it follows the volunteers, foreign fighters, and basically the, the various there's sort of a lot of categories that involve these foreign folks. You have strict humanitarian work. You have people who are uh, like you did on your first trip, training recruits and draftees. You spoke with one, uh, Jeremy Fisher, who was a U.S. Air Force uh, veteran. So what motivates these folks to come? You know, I, I know like you, you did a short stint and then went home, and then other trainers came in. It was a succession of trainers. Some of these people are staying did you get a sense of what's motivating them to stay in this particular conflict? You know, it, it kind of runs the gamut of motivations. Um, one of the Ukrainian volunteers we, we talked to, uh, Oleksandra uh, Blintsova, for her uh, helping run kind of a volunteer organization gives her something to do while her husband's fighting at the front. So she, uh, you know, doesn't feel without purpose. You know, uh, she's, an, she's an agent of resistance herself. Uh, then some of the, some of the, foreign fighters, uh, who uh, American veterans that we spoke to, uh, younger men, uh, still kind of in their 20s or early 30s, who have joined the International Legion. You know, they, they tended to have served kind of maybe later on in the global war on terror. So younger than a few years after me in Syria or Afghanistan, when uh, combat experiences seem to be, they just happened less and less for, for, for different reasons for the, those wars changing. So an infantry sergeant uh, said there was just still kind of an itch to scratch. Mm. Uh, and, you know, helping stop a genocide is a righteous cause to, to do that for. Uh, for some of the older volunteers, men in their 40s or 50s, I, we noticed a lot of them uh, have grown children uh, that they, they don't necessarily feel responsible for. Many of them, frankly, are, are divorced or separated. Uh, and so there's kind of a, a middle-aged aimlessness. And, and doing something like this being able to contribute and, and impart, you know, hard-earned wisdom, uh, it matters to them. I, I, I'm, I'm thinking of a New Zealand paramedic named Dean, who, uh, on his own dime, flew over, uh, and, and now you know teaches basic trainees, um, basic medical information, and, and basic medical training that's going to save lives down the line. A number of these men are, you know, I, I think people sometimes, feel, you know, you know, you see these Russian conspiracies that they're, oh, they're all getting paid, they're all mercenaries. Listen, it's a war. People are making money. I get it. But many of the ones we talk to, you know, they're spending their 
VA disability checks. They're spending their reti- military retirement checks. They're tap. They're pulling out of their lifelong savings to do this uh, and to be able to stay over there. Because once you get over there, it, having done it twice, I can say personally, it's very hard to leave because um, there is a unity of effort. There is there is a a collective resolve that is as as sad as it is, as tragic as it is under the circumstances. It's also inspiring because it's, it's it's the best and the worst of humanity all at once together. As you well know, uh, the the atrocities that have taken place in this war have been well publicized. Uh, massacres in Buka. You know, you have stories of Russians leaving territory, taking the children with them back to Russia, you know, which is something out of not even last century. It's Mm -hmm. like this goes back to, you know, centuries ago practices in warfare. And I'm wondering how much that publicization of these issues focuses these international people who are in this conflict as far as this is a good cause, and this is something that's larger than myself. Yeah, it's tricky because it seems so. It seems so evil, and it is evil, right? Uh, and understandably, post-Vietnam America, our citizenry is skeptical toward war propaganda. Um, some even cynical. You know, there is a war wariness in our society after twenty years of uh, Iraq and Afghanistan came to ambiguous ends, really. But this is not that. You know, I, I, I think it's so important to remind people that um, this isn't about your political ideology. This is about everyday lives. I, I talked to a Ukrainian writer turned soldier named Artem Chapai, who considered himself a pacifist before last February and, and had, had written about his, uh, had participated in non-resistance methods during the social revolutions, uh, Orange Revolution and, and Euromaidan which occurred in Ukraine um, in the years preceding, preceding this war. Well, he, he, put, he put it very bluntly. He said, your entire worldview changes when you wake up from a missile strike and the building is shaking and your children are asking you, what do we do, daddy? What do we do? Mm. And you know, I would just ask people, whatever your own politics are, whatever your worldview is, whatever you think about this war, ask yourself what you would do if another country was trying to push into your community, your country, and take your children away from you because they spoke, quote unquote, the wrong language. They learned the wrong history. They believed in the wrong cultural heroes. That's what's happening. That is happening right now. And uh, America admittedly has a mixed record on foreign policy. Well, that doesn't mean that helping end a genocide still isn't the right thing to do. Yeah. And uh, uh, not being bogged down by by history, and just just asking yourself, what would you do on a personal level? I, I think could be very clarifying. You know, uh, America has a very checkered record in confronting that. In fact, many places we didn't step in. And I think sure. I think you could look at this and say, well, why is this different? But the main thing I think to the people on the ground is at least the United States is offering sucker, if if you will for the people of this particular conflict. I think that's right. You know, and there's also, I think it's important to remember that, you know, Ukraine before all this was a sovereign democracy, right? Mm -hmm. It's no, it was not a perfect country, uh, but it was making lots of progress. Uh, It it was getting rid of its, its corruption issues. Zelensky, frankly, probably wasn't America's favorite uh, when he, when he won the election, but he did. And uh, now he's an inspiration across the globe. 
there's a moral clarity that comes with helping defend something, I think, that uh, I feel is important to stress to folks who might be skeptical towards our efforts here, given the last 20 years. Tell me a little about the International Legion, the, the group that is actually, I was really struck by something you said. There were some members that you spoke with who felt like they were being treated as window dressing to get more aid, mm-hmm. to get supplies in. And what they wanted to do was go to the front. Uh, can you maybe talk a little bit about their motivations and what you found there? Sure. Yeah, the International Legion, for uh, a lot of reasons, has been a big publicity hit for Ukraine, right? Um, there is something deeply romantic about uh, volunteer soldiers from across the world coming together to serve a country that many of them probably had not been to before the war. But it comes with technical challenges, language barriers, uh, training barriers, the fact that there isn't kind of a universal screening process. Not everybody's gone through the same kind of basic training, so there's a trust that the man behind you is who he says he is. Two of the legionnaires that we interviewed for this piece, uh, Josh and Eric, both American uh, veterans, uh, were very candid uh, about their experiences, uh, proud proud of their time in the service uh, with the Legion. They both got wounded east of Kharkiv uh, during the counteroffensive last fall. But it said that, uh, I think they said about 10, only about 10% of folks in the Legion were the real deal, that, mm. that it was a bit of a zoo at times. And... You know, I think that's important to remember. You know, I've talked to a number of veterans who who have thought about going over themselves because uh, they they feel the pull that that we talked about earlier. And uh, motivation is one thing, but competence is another. And Ukraine, in kind of a, a that's something the, the article explores on kind of a small local level. Uh, there's been a lot of weeding out uh, between the two. Yeah, okay, you you want to help? That's great, but are you able to help? And that, that's the first thing I, I tell folks, you know, w- whether they want to go fight or whether they want to go do medical training, whether they just want to drive a truck of supplies, whatever. Are you actually up to this? Because, because this, is, uh, this is real. You know, an American volunteer named Pete Reed was just killed just a few weeks ago uh, in a, uh, a, a Russian strike um, in, in Bakhmut. Just because you're not carrying a gun does not mean you're not a target. And... Uh, some people understand and understand that and then find a different way to help, um, whether it's here in the States or in Poland. Others, others still go forth. And uh, however somebody's helping, even if it's just donating to an organization, it's, it's an inspiring thing because this, in my estimation, is, is the righteous cause that uh, does occasionally happen in the world, uh, uh, as complicated and as, as uh, messy as it can be sometimes. Uh, you wrote, uh, straightforward accounts only... Uh, serve fixed agendas. Uh, he said the real stuff lies in the long and crooked. Do you feel like you've gotten a, at least a sense of what the long and crooked is in this conflict, or is it something you're still figuring out? I'm, I'm trying to. You know, I, I think every time I go over there, um, I get a little bit better sense of it, um, and the war gets uh, the war gets bigger, and I, I realize just how expansive this is becoming, and you know the fact that. It's not going anywhere time soon. Uh, we'll continue to magnify that. And, and th- there are big, heady questions uh, that await. Will Western support for Ukraine continue the way it has through upcoming elections? Are they as committed to Ukrainian trying to reclaim, say, Crimea right. uh, as, as they are uh, reclaiming the rest of the Donbass region? Is Putin right? Can he outweigh Western democracies, which, which he seems to firmly believe he can? 
these are open-ended questions, and uh, time is going to uh, reveal, but time is also going to change some of these, a- these answers. But I do know, I don't know much, but I do know that uh, Ukraine's resolve and, and uh, love of freedom and, 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 and love, of, love of democracy that they've really only, only had for about two decades now, that's not going away. You know, there's a reason I think so many other political leaders and military leaders are men and women in their 30s and 40s, right? Because they're the generation that was born into this. This belongs to them. They're not going to let it be taken away from them, no matter how. And I, I just don't, I don't know if Putin really understands that, that it really does not matter how many Ukrainians um, he's able to su- successfully kill because there's going to be more of them and they're just going to keep fighting. The trainees that you uh, helped train in the first month of the war, when you went back, did you manage to catch up with any of them? Do you know their status at this particular point? Some some are fighting. Some are in Bakhmut right now fighting. Um, mm. I, I, I've I've exchanged texts with two of them over the past week who who are participating in the defense of of, of that city in Donbas. Others went back to um, kind of their normal lives in Lviv. Um, most of them seem to be kind of serving as uh, territorial defense. Uh, manning checkpoints um, in Western Ukraine, uh, which frees up uh, units to to rotate to the front. But it, you know, it, it's it's a militarized society at this point. You know, e- even in quote unquote the safe parts of of Ukraine in the West. I remember you saying that uh, the checkpoints had changed drastically, <laughs> yes, drastically they, from the oh, first yeah. month of the war. They've got it figured out now. Yeah, we, when we rolled in, I, I do one of my f- fixed memories from that first trip in in February was. They're new to this, you know. I, I I remembered from Iraq what what a checkpoint is supposed to look like. They were still figuring it out. Uh, returning returning in the autumn. Oh yeah, they're on it now. They're on it now. And uh, uh, you know, another example of that is they've had eight years to build up a defensive line uh, in in the Kramatorsk area, um, just west of of Bakhmut. Again, I'm not a strategist, but eight years of defense buildup. I, I I have a really hard time seeing how even an army of of zombie uh, uh, conscripts is going to be able to penetrate that. So what, what are you doing long-term with this reporting you're doing? Are you, you think you're going to make, write a book or are you working on something else now? Oh, you know, it, that wasn't the plan. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, I'm, I'm one of those writers that, uh, is the last person to realize that, that I've been putting together a long-term project. Uh, most of my efforts right now are focused on a, a short novel, uh, set during the initial invasion in Ukraine, uh, last February. And uh, it kind of blends together our experiences as trainers with those of uh, some of those international volunteers uh, uh, that I've met and gotten to know, two American veterans that uh, arrive in Ukraine in late February uh, and are going to join join the International Legion. And uh, there's a love story element to it um, as well, in, in involving one of the veterans and, and the Ukrainian woman that uh, he's always wondered what if about. So uh, it's coming together. I- I'm excited by it. Um, and uh, as soon as, as, soon as I'm, I'm done with this interview, it's back to revisions. <laughs> well, we wish you great luck with that uh, project. Look forward to it. Matt, thanks very much for joining us. Rich, appreciate your time. Thank you. Matt Gallagher is a Tulsa artist fellow, a writer, a novelist. His most recent novel is titled Empire City. The Iraq war veteran has been visiting Ukraine since the outbreak of hostilities there. And his second article for Esquire magazine is titled, The Secret Weapons of Ukraine. 
Well, that's Studio Tulsa for today. Our program is produced and edited by Scott Gregory. The views of our guests and commentators are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of KWGS or its licensee, the University of Tulsa. I'm Rich Fisher. Thanks for listening.